Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, welcome to Trashy Divorces. My name is Stacy. Hello, darlings. I'm Alicia. Thanks for joining us today on another episode of Trashy Divorces. We're kicking off my real birthday week. Your birthday week. We're finally here. Leo season is in full swing. I mean, there's a buildup. There's a midpoint. There's a slow rollout till we hit Virgo season. If you have questions about this, just ask a Leo, <laughs> any Leo. Hey, we've got two bad girls in our episode this week. Stacy, for my birthday delight, you have assembled some real bad girls. Like, so I have two in mind. These are the pirates, Anne Bonnie and Mary Reed. So good. Sort of a soap opera of the pirate days. <laughs> Happy birthday. Um, and you covering my favorite bad girl from Alabama, Tallulah Bankhead. It, that one is a smidge explicit. So if for some reason you listen to this show with small children, maybe the second story is not. Oh, it's saucy, y'all. It's saucy. It's, saucy. I know we normally serve saucy up pretty good, but sure. this one's a little saucier a little than saucier. normal. So well, anyway, fair warning. Hey. Little ears, just maybe not. Maybe not. <laughs> hey, it is birthday week, though. And that means it's birthday week for everyone. <laughs> for Sunday, Wednesday listeners, I've added a bunch of new stuff on our bit.ly slash trash candy link. You can listen to a bunch of free Patreon episodes over there. Patreon supporters, y'all are getting presents for my birthday week. It's true. This week, stay tuned for a special announcement tomorrow about that for you and all the delightful things coming your way at every level. Shall we jump over to our magic mirror? I think we should. Thank our new patrons. All right, I will kick us off. They didn't even know they were coming in for birthday week. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us at patreon.com. Lauren T, Vic C, Rachel H, Margaret M, Kristen M, and Claudia C. Diana, Colleen L, Joyce W. Thank y'all so much. I want to give an extra special shout out to some new annual Patreon supporters. Karen A, Lee D, Sheila A. Thank you. Thank you. Extra big trashy shout out to Michelle, our new super supporter. Hope to see you on the Sunday Salon happening today, August 8th. So what needs to happen now, do you think, birthday week girl? Bad girls say, we got to go, go, go. Oh, Stacey, I am a fan of the pirate stories. I know you are. Do you know what a pirate's favorite letter is? <laughs> is it R? Nay, it be the C. All right, it's pirate a, story. It's a joke. Enchant me, it be the C. Yes, for your birthday. This isn't really a divorce story, although I guess there are lost lovers. This kind of has everything. Pirate stories are great fun, partly because the background stories of pirates are often lost to the mists of time and... Over the centuries, what facts there are have bumped up against plenty of fictions and 
wish casts and fantasies about the roving life on the high seas. It's part of what makes these stories so alluring. Generations have been mesmerized by the Republic of Pirates and the Golden Age of Piracy, and that was true for newspapers in their own day as well. The Boston Gazette reported eagerly on the piracy wave of the early 1700s. Pretty sure they had a correspondent in the Caribbean who was Come on, of course. mailing them stories or whatever. I'm on the pirate beat. I'm on the pirate beat. I love it. <laughs> Journalists. <laughs> Times were better. <laughs> and as the myths and legends tell us, piracy drew a young woman named Anne Bonny to the sunny shores. Our fair heroine. Of the Caribbean. And brought another, Mary Reed, through capture. What we know, or what we think we know, of their stories is awesome, although it's probably largely the spinning of a yarn. I see what you did there. Mm -hmm. All right, so let's jump over to County Cork in Ireland sometime around 1700. Some sources have Anne Cormac's birth date as March 8th, 1697, which would make her a Pisces, interestingly. But it's not like you can scroll her Instagram feed to look for the birthday party, so we have no idea. Anyway, young Anne got off to a wonderful start as the illegitimate daughter of a lawyer named William McCormick and his servant woman, Mary Brennan. Oh. William had gone to London to work and get some space from his wife's overbearing family. Sounds like he got a little more than space. <laughs> and when his wife learned about the kid... And that, get this, he was dressing Anne as a boy, calling her Andy and training her to be a lawyer's clerk. Oh my God. She was as furious as you would imagine. She made a big public stink about it, which wrecked his business. Uh, her family cut him off financially, which, you know, duh. So the story goes, he grabbed his girlfriend, grabbed the kid, and they hopped a boat to what was then the province of Carolina in America. Wow. Setting up shop in Charlestown, now Charleston. Okay. The legend continues. All of this is likely fabricated. Daddy Cormac did well in mercantile pursuits, the specifics of which in that time and place pretty certainly included the giant human trafficking operation known as slavery. But Anne's mother died when she was just 12. Anne is said to have had red hair and a volcanic temper. When she was 13, she's said to have stabbed a servant girl with a knife, Ooh. and in another story, she's said to have beaten the hell out of a guy who was trying to sexually assault her, which had him laid up for weeks. It was apparently a pretty brutal beating. Think Arya Stark, Charleston edition. Good on Anne. When Anne gets to be 15 or 16, introducing the bad boy, she, she meets a guy named James Bonney. James has himself a little boat. And he does some small-time piracy. Oh, like fantastic. Do. Oh, yeah. And Anne is... I just dabble in it. It's not my real job. Right. Anne is in hook, line, and sinker. I'm assuming this is the modern, the the uh, oldie, olden days equivalent of like, my boyfriend has a Camaro or a Corvette, you know? He has like an IROC. <laughs> For his part, James is very taken with all of the money that Anne's father has accumulated as well as the large plantation that he owns. So James is like, heck yes, let's get hitched. Wow. They marry, which causes a huge rift with her father. Oh, I and bet. Eventually, James and Anne set out for the Bahamas, where Nassau was at the time being described as the Republic of Pirates. So they just get on a boat and take off? His boat. I learned it by watching you, Dad. They hop in the Corvette and storm out of there. Fantastic. 
and fell in love with the local scene. She was chilling in the taverns by night, befriending real-life pirates, and everything was amazing. Queen of the pirates! This is great! But James, it turns out, was not a very good pirate, which resulted in his being <laughs> down on his luck financially. Okay. And uh, perhaps he was also caught at one point for Ooh. piracy. Anyway, he became an informant for the royal governor, Woods Rogers. What a name. Governor. Governor. And was mad. Her good-for-nothing husband was suddenly ratting out her super cool friends. Don't make the bar weird, man. Seriously, I'm queen of the pirates. You can't rat out my friends. Ah, James. Jimmy. So one story I saw got pretty detailed about what happened next, which means it's almost certainly fiction. (laughs) Anyway, it said that she turned to a Frenchman she knew named Pierre. Pierre, according to this story, was a fabulously out homosexual who ran a local brothel and was therefore not only welcome in the Republic of Pirates, but an esteemed member of the of community. Natch. Pierre helped her leave James Bonnie, perhaps lodging her in the brothel, and soon she had struck up an affair with a real pirate, if one who had technically retired. John Calico Jack Rackham. Oh, yeah, this yeah. is getting better. Screw you, James Bonnie. I'm tossing your eye rock out. You're not even a you're a crummy pirate. I'll find a better one. I'll crash that car. All right, they were head over heels. Calico Jack. Calico Jack. And Anne Bonnie. And Anne Bonnie. Jack had recently accepted a royal pardon in exchange for giving up piracy. Oh. Perhaps he was not adjusting well to life in the straight and narrow. When James learned of the affair, he was obviously outraged. But Calico Jack was like, hey, dude, how about I pay you? You divorce Anne. We're all good. That did not help. Oh. James refused the money, which is weird. There were heated words. Probably. Some sword fights. And apparently James went to Woods Rogers, the royal governor, and was like, hey, my wife is cheating on me. That's adultery. You should do something about it. What can the governor do about it? Flog her publicly. Like, flog her in the public square. This was... One telling is that James Bonney asked the governor to do this to punish his wife. Another is that the governor ordered her to quit the affair or she would be publicly flogged. So, keep your government out of my body and my marriage, mister. Calico Jack decided there was only one way to handle this. He sent Anne out to buy herself some dashing menswear. Well, he put his pirate crew back together, and they set out on the high seas with his mistress, disguised as a man, as part of his crew. Huzzah! Huzzah. Let's meet this dashing fellow, Calico Jack. He was not the richest pirate working the warm Caribbean seas, but he was notable for being devious backstabbing people freely, and he introduced the Jolly Roger flag. Fantastic. That skull and crossbones. He was probably English-born, but little is known about his early life. He became a pirate captain by organizing a mutiny against another pirate captain. Normally how it goes if you're not a half-bad pirate. This was Captain Charles Vane. Calico Jack was his quartermaster, and I guess they came upon a warship and opted, Vane opted not to go out, like he was concerned this upset the pirates who had wanted to attack it so they sent him off on one of the smaller boats in their little ragtag fleet with uh some loyalists anyway so calico jack's biggest get as a pirate was a jamaican vessel that unfortunately he took in full view of port royal oh god modern day kingston jamaica no dude 
You got to wait for it to get out of the harbor. You got to wait for it to be out of sight. That's just, that's sloppy piracy right there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like, look, everyone understood that piracy was part of the currency of the region, but you don't conduct piracy in view of the merchants and traders who had goods on the vessel Uh -uh. or like friends and family working on the vessel or... Who had financed this journey? It was Yikes. not good. On the high seas. So the city launches a GoFundMe. No, they fundraise. <laughs> um, they hire a Spanish pirate hunting vessel, which proceeded to harry Calico Jack and eventually captured his flagship. The pirates escape the vessel. They head out in Cuba. And then when the, hey, if you'll give up piracy, we'll give you a full pardon thing happened, they came back. And took the pardons. Okay. Give up piracy and all shall be forgiven. So. How'd that go? Um, you know, to a man, they blamed that bastard Captain Vane for turning them into pirates <laughs> and swore they would turn their lives around. Uh, these new leaves would not turn for long, though. Oh. This is when Calico Jack met and began his affair with Anne. In a way, it was the governor's informant, James Bonney, who sent Calico Jack back to the pirate's life. So basically to save her from public humiliation and a beating in the square. Yeah, yo-ho, it's a pirate's life for me. Yeah. We're splitting Calico out of this Jack, town. yep, gets the band back together, steals a boat that's in the harbor. Fantastic. And uh, sailed off to pirate again. Woo! Voiding all their pardons. <laughs> Disguised Anne and Calico Jack were secret lovers. Seriously, this is... Shakespeare. You hear it, Atlantic Star, right? Uh-huh. Secret oh, yeah. oh yeah. Until it was clear that Anne had become pregnant. Oh, shit. You can imagine how that conversation may have played out <laughs> aboard the ship. It's not actually clear to me whether they, in this telling of the story, divulged the information to the crew or not. But if they did, you can imagine. Hey, guys, you know Andy over here, right? <laughs> Awkward turtle. Got a surprise. Actually, I got two surprises. (laughs) Okay, so they drop Anne off in Cuba to have the baby. She was apparently there for several months. Some accounts say that she had the baby and left it with, like, people that she knew in Cuba. Others say the baby was stillborn. I don't know. I can't imagine that a pirate ship is a great place for a baby to grow up. I think that even... Then all of the parenting books did discourage raising babies on pirate ships. Makes sense. They're not great fighters, babies. (laughs) If they're colicky with all the rocking on the sea, you're never going to get that baby to sleep. They will not swab a deck to (laughs) literally save their own lives. Okay. (laughs) By the time the disguised Anne returned from maternity leave or whatever... There was a new crew member. Oh. Mark Reed. Oh. But Mark Reed had a secret. He was doing the same thing Anne was. What? It was actually Mary Reed. Holy shit. (laughs) Mary hailed from Devon County in England where her childhood had been strange. Her mother's husband had died and her mother took comfort in the arms of another man becoming pregnant with Mary. So a bit of a scandal there. Meanwhile, Mary had a half-brother, Mark who died um, soon after she was born. Little problem, Mary's grandmother provided financial support to the family so that Mark could go to school and such to keep that money coming in. Mom just raised Mary as Mark. (gasps) I guess Granny had poor eyesight. (laughs) Oh, my. This is like soap operas of the day, for real. There's a rumor that this happened to Elizabeth I, Queen Mm -hmm. Elizabeth, that she 
was really a boy and was just passed off. And anyway. <sighs> oh, the repetitions of time. As Mary entered puberty, her grandmother died. But well, that's convenient. She was quite happy continuing as a boy. She took a job in a household in London as a footman, but got bored and headed to sea. After a while aboard a man of war, she wanted to try something else, so Mark Reed joined the British Army. It was here that she first fell in love with a Flemish soldier, allied with the British in whatever war was currently happening in the Netherlands, God knows. After disclosing her gender and her love, she and her future husband fled the army, moved to the Netherlands, and opened an inn. Oh, like well, that sounds do. so nice, like, like you do. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, oh no! not long after their wedding, I'm telling you, it's a soap opera, her husband got sick and died. Oh, shit. In her grief, she resumed her life as Mark hopped a Dutch ship sailing to the Caribbean and days out from port, pirates attacked. Mark rejoined the crew and for a year or two pirated around the Caribbean. She gave up piracy along with the rest of her crew in exchange for the pardon in 1718 or 1719. But after a while, money was getting tight. And this is how, as Mark, she joined Calico Jack's crew. It be the sea, baby. It be the sea. So anyway, Anne gets back from maternity leave, as the story goes, still cosplaying Andy, and was drawn to Mark Reed. Oh, I bet. Eventually, in an attempt to seduce Mark, oh God, she reveals her gender. <gasps> Surprise! <laughs> how did that go? Mark did the same. <laughs> this is amazing. Calico Jack was not exactly thrilled that Anne was scoping out the new guy on the boat. So to soothe his temper, Anne told him that Mark was Don't worry, he's not even a well. guy. <laughs> Calico, relax, man. There are certainly speculations that the three of them were some sort of plural family or that Anne and Mary may have had a side tryst going on. Who knows? You, you, there's a lot of time a lot of, that you're on that boat. I mean, it's a soap opera, so you must assume that all of those things were happening. Anyway, there's another story that says that Mary, still as Mark to the rest of the crew, fell in love with a new recruit from a ship they'd captured. The young man got into a fight with a more experienced pirate, and a duel was arranged oh God. for the next landfall. Because Mary, like Anne, was an experienced and very fierce fighter, Mary picked her own fight with the other pirate and set her duel with him for an earlier time slot. Fantastic. Because you can't duel on a boat. You can't just get it over with. You gotta... Does that cool everybody down, I wonder? I think you are giving a little too much credence to the yarn I'm spinning. Okay, I'm sorry. (laughs) I don't know what dueling rules were on pirate ships. I really... She dispatched the other pirate, the story goes, with her sword and her pistol, saving her lover from almost certain doom. Just good on you, Anne Bonnie. Just hours later, it was Mary Reed. Oh, good on you, Mary Reed. Okay. Yo-ho-ho, a pirate's life for me. Meanwhile, the royal governor back in the Bahamas was not at all pleased by the development of this gender-bending pirate crew full of people who'd turned their backs on a perfectly good pardon he'd given them. In October 1720, he published a proclamation declaring... Calico Jack and his entire crew, including Anne Bonny and Mary Reed, who were both correctly named in the proclamation, which was published up in the Boston Gazette. Because the pirate beat reporter was on it. Sure. So they're all named as enemies of the crown. Wow. The fact that they were correctly identified in the proclamation strongly suggests that all the cross-dressing stuff is fully made up. But anyway, two pirate hunters... 
Jonathan Barnett, and former pirate Jean Bonadvis, Jean Bonavi, Jean Bonavi, set off to kill or capture the crew, which was at that time chasing down fishing vessels near Jamaica to rob them. On the night of October 31st, or maybe it was November 15th, who can say, they captured the crew after a short fight. There are accounts saying that the men aboard were all very drunk and tried to hide below decks with only Anne and Mary putting up any resistance as the boarding party arrived. Welcome to women. Calico Jack met his end. He was hanged in Port Royal on the 18th of November, 1720. And then his body was strung up at the front of the harbor as a warning to others. And that um, there's a little a little islet that is now known as uh, Rackham's Key, where apparently his body eventually dissolved. Okay. So um, sad end for Calico Jack. Yeah, I mean, it's pirate. Pirate's life. Rough justice back then. <laughs> Mary and Anne both pleaded pregnancy after they were sentenced to death. Ooh. And there's reason to believe Mary at least actually was pregnant whether it was Calico Jacks or the mythical lover or God knows, and Bonnie's, I don't know. (laughs) But the custom of the day was that you did not execute pregnant women. (laughs) Seems like a nice rule. Mary survived several months in prison, but succumbed to fever in late April of 1721. Another source says December 1720 at the age of 35 or 36. Poor Mary. She was buried at St. Catherine's Church in Jamaica. There is a record of that. Anyway, there is some reason to think that Anne Bonny's story continued on. Apparently, people have tracked down some records that maybe indicate that her dad back in Charleston paid a ransom to the Crown, to Woods Rogers, to someone, and brought her back home. To Charlestown. Where the story goes, she gave birth to Calico Jack's child, (gasps) or perhaps not. (laughs) Stay tuned next season. (laughs) More, a historical drama. In this telling of Anne Bonny's life, she married for a second time late in 1721, when she was maybe 23. It's a lot of living she has done. And went on to live almost six more decades. What? Accounts vary, but she is said to have had five, or maybe eight, or maybe ten more children (laughs) as the wife of Virginia tobacco plantation owner James Burley. Wow. In this story, Anne Bonnie Burley lived to the ripe old age of 81 and is buried in York County, Virginia. Do you know all I can see is her kids and her grandkids like walking her around and she's like, I used to be the queen of the pirates and I won 50 pieces of eight off Blackbeard one night. And they're like, sure, grandma, let's get you back to bed. Yeah, that's... Um, to have a whole life that you probably, like, your dad has probably forbidden you Oh yeah, to ever say a word about your pirate's life. Let me redeem you. I don't think you get to live in, like, Virginia elite circles if, you're, if you've been Come a pirate. Come here about my life as a cross-dressing pirate with Calico Jack. <gasps> this is amazing. A few caveats on all of this, which will speak to the large plot holes you may have noticed in my tale. <laughs> This is from Tony Bartelm of Charleston's Post and Courier newspaper. Apparently, very little of this story is verifiably true. These people did exist. They were pirates. Those proclamations were issued and the trial transcripts exist. But beyond that, there's no real record of Anne's connection to South Carolina at all. There's no, like, if her dad lived there, he was not some sort of prominent member of society. That backstory is likely all an invention. 
There's also no real reason to believe she ended up as a Virginia octogenarian. <laughs> so this is what he writes. Nearly three centuries after Anne Bonny's trial, we know that a woman named Anne Bonny was alive in the early 1700s, that some people called her Anne Fulford and Bon, that she lived in the Bahamas for a time and joined a pirate crew. We don't know whether she ever lived in Charleston, who her parents were, whether she married a man named James Bonny, her true role aboard the pirate sloop, what her relationships were with Jack Rackham and Mary Reed, and whether she ever was released from the Jamaican prison. So her story lives on in two alternate universes, a true tale rooted in authentic documents and another much better one, in my view, layered in fiction. On this episode is the rolls. I love it. So apparently what happened here is in 1724, as the golden age of piracy was kind of wrapping up, there was a book published called A General History of the Pirates, pirates with a Y, so that's nice, which was subheaded with the remarkable actions and adventures of the two female pirates, Mary Reed and Anne Bonny, by someone called Captain Charles Johnson, which is likely a pseudonym. And the book became wildly popular on both sides of the Atlantic and like has literally for centuries now has fueled the ongoing and expanding mythos of actual female pirates. And people at the trial were testifying like, of course, and they were dressed as men, but you could see their breasts. Like we knew they were women. <laughs> Nobody was fooling anybody. This, uh, they, it was probably just a practical consideration. Like, why are you going to bother with costume changes on a pirate ship? <laughs> like, just wear what everybody's wearing. You can borrow clothes. Wow. Anyway, there, there are. Are. Happy birthday. There's your pirate story. I okay, love grandma. it. Let's get you back. Let's get you back sure, to bed, Grandma. Sure, Blackbeard. Okay. Sure, Grandma. Wow. I love pirate stories. They <laughs> delight great. me. They're great. That was amazing. So yeah, I don't think she divorced James Bonney so much as just ditched him. And that was that. How many trash cans does Anne Bonny get? Ooh, like 11 billion. I mean, she was fierce and violent. And would urge the crew to murder the people on boat. Like, if you didn't join the pirate ship, like, just kill them so they can't testify against us later, which they did. Yeah, like, 11 billion trash cans. And they're all in the Caribbean. (laughs) They all have a parrot on them. (laughs) Well done. Hey, I hope you enjoyed that. I did. Thank you. That was a delightful birthday romp on the high seas. Let's take a quick break. We'll be back with... One of my another bad girl. Another bad girl. Mm-hmm. My mm-hmm. third favorite Alabama bad girl <laughs> besides me and Zelda Sarah Fitzgerald. Mm-hmm. See you on the flip, y'all. Summer reading season is upon us. Have you ever considered how your personal finances would read as a literary genre? Would it be a sweet romance with a happy ending? Or a thriller you could only read during the day. The clever ladies at the Oak Tree Group want to help you write your most compelling financial story. These three holistic planners have 77 years of combined experience helping people navigate all kinds of financial plot twists and turns. They can help you with a wide breadth of financial strategies. Check out their website, www.theoaktreegroup.net, and see the experience and areas of expertise these women bring to the people they serve. The Oak Tree Group is offering our listeners a free one-hour consultation on your financial script. See their website, www.theoaktreegroup.net, for additional contact details.
There's never a wrong time to take a look at the things that are keeping you from living your best life. And if now is your moment, we recommend BetterHelp. BetterHelp is confidential, convenient, and safe professional counseling with your own licensed therapist. BetterHelp's quick questionnaire matches you with a counselor in under 24 hours, and you can message your counselor at any time, even between scheduled phone or video sessions. And if you're not clicking, that's fine. It is free to change counselors. BetterHelp is available worldwide. They offer specialized expertise that may not be available locally where you live. It's more affordable than traditional counseling. Financial aid is available as well. It has just never been easier to find a licensed professional counselor. In fact, there are so many people using BetterHelp that they are recruiting counselors in all 50 states. We want you to start living your happiest life today. As a Trashy Divorces listener, you get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash trashy. Join more than 1 million people who are taking charge of their mental health. Visit betterhelp, that's betterhelp.com slash trashy. So hello, darling. I understand darling. you have a classic tale. Classic tale. Of One of my favorite candy. bad girls. Baddest in the best of ways. She is probably the queen of trashy. I love her so much. Tallulah Bankhead is my subject today. And she's now passed into Hollywood legend. Evokes images of glamour and fame and her distinctive darling. There's much more to this unconventional and flamboyant celebrity than scandal and controversy. Lawton Campbell, an ad executive and playwright from Montgomery, Alabama, will say, of all the people who ever came out of Alabama, I think Zelda Sarah Fitzgerald and Tallulah Bankhead, the most fascinating. I concur. Tallulah is one of the most celebrated and famous stars of her time. She's known for her notorious drinking her drug use, her sexual liberation. What what was her era? Like, when was she? She was born in 1902. Okay. And started up in the 1920s, 1930s, 1940s. Okay. She starts young. We'll find out. Okay. Marlena Daytrick, we'll call her the most immoral woman who ever lived. Already love it. Cecil Beaton, we'll call her a wicked archangel. <laughs> so good. Bankhead will boast of having slept with more than 500 people, but it is unknown how accurate that number is because she liked to say a lot of things for shuck value. One such remark, she's got a lot of really good remarks, quotes to Lula. She's classic. One such remark caused shock, whether it was designed to or not. She said, going down on a woman gives me a stiff neck. Going down on a man gives me locked jaw and conventional sex gives me claustrophobia. <clears throat> Maybe this episode is not so much for the kids. No, no, this is not for children at all. I mean, I don't think our podcast is for children at all anyway, but little ears don't need to be yeah. in because we're, yeah. just, we're just starting. Okay. Tallulah wants to describe herself <laughs> saying, I'm as pure as the driven slush. She will write in her memoirs, I was a hedonist long before I knew what a hedonist was. Tallulah, outspoken, unapologetic about her life. <laughs> she will once say, regarding her bisexuality and drug use, Daddy warned me about men and alcohol, but he never warned me about women and cocaine. <laughs> Talented, controversial, Tallulah Bankhead continues to fascinate. Fiercely independent, fiercely an individual. She is truly a woman ahead of her time. She will famously say, I want to try everything once. And friends... 
I think she just might have. Tallulah Bankhead, born on January 31st, 1902 in Huntsville, Alabama. Heard of it? Capricorn gal. She's named for her grandmother, who had been named after Tallulah Falls, Georgia, when her parents visited there on their honeymoon. So Tallulah, named after a Georgia landmark. Tallulah has an older sister, Eugenia, Jean. Jean is visually impaired due to her premature birth. The Bankhead family is politically prominent, not just the Bankheads, but the Brockmans too. They're big deal Alabama families, lives a life of privilege. Tallulah's paternal uncle and her grandfather are both United States senators. Tallulah's daddy is the Speaker of the United States House of Representatives during FDR's presidency from 1936 to 1940. A little piece of Americana here. There's a thing called Bankhead Highway. Mm -hmm. It's big in Atlanta. It's been made famous through some hip-hop and rap songs. Atlanta people... The Bankhead Bounce. Absolutely. Atlanta people might not know, and domestic listeners might not know, that the Bankhead Highway was, is, a cross-country highway that runs from San Diego to Washington, D.C. It was an interstate highway system before it was an interstate highway system. This Bankhead Highway from San Diego to D.C. is named after John Hollis Bankhead, grandfather of Tallulah Bankhead. John Hollis Bankhead is a congressman. He's a U.S. senator, and he's advocating for roadways early in the 20th century, and he is instrumental in getting the Federal Aid Road Act in 1916 passed, which is the first federal funding program for actual roads. Welcome to the future. (laughs) Hear that, Pete Buttigieg? (laughs) Residents of West Atlanta, where Bankhead Highway runs through, began to call the area Bankhead, which Diamond and D-Rock will introduce to the world in 1995 through their infamous song, The Bankhead Bounce. Bankhead Highway in Georgia is renamed a few years later to the Donald Lee Hollowell Parkway. Donald Lee Hollowell was a legendary civil rights attorney in the South, best known for winning the landmark 1961 case to integrate the University of Georgia. Donald Lee Hollowell also defends Martin Luther King during the Albany movement desegregation campaign in the early 1960s. Hollowell also provides counsel to student activists during Atlanta's sit-ins. Big deal. We were once pulled over on it. And a (laughs) very nice cop did not ticket us for my misunderstanding how that light worked. (laughs) Rules, baby. Rules. Atlanta people are always going to call it Bankhead, though. Yeah. Uh, Oh, yeah. Like Atlanta people really annoy people who aren't from Atlanta when we say Ponce de Leon for one of our big roads. Anyway, I digress. The first United States highway system is named after Tallulah Bankhead's grandpa. Right. Which might give you an idea of how steeped into politics, white man, Southern patriarchy, the Bankhead family is. Sadly, Tallulah's mom dies of blood poisoning. Three weeks after Tallulah's born. Yeah. After her mother's death, her dad suffers from depression, sinks into alcoholism. He is unable to properly care for two young daughters, one with some medical issues. And and one's a brand new baby. Yeah. One's a brand new baby who's going to be sickly a lot. That's how she gets her voice. 
She's always sick, strep throat, pneumonia, which is how she develops this really deep voice as a young kid. Because dad is physically and emotionally unable to care for his girls, they get sent off to their maternal grandmother and aunts in Montgomery, Alabama. Here's where we connect my two favorite Alabama ladies, Tallulah Bankhead and Zelda Sayre. They're friends. Tallulah in town is known by her nickname Dutch. Zelda's dad, Tallulah's dad, everybody's in the legal system, right? So kids playing together, important men about town and all that. But Dutch, Tallulah, is an exhibitionist. She does cartwheels, gymnastics, antics. She's always, she's always trying to get her dad's attention when she can. She's unruly otherwise. Tallulah's also trying to compete with a sister, Jean, who's a little bit more glamorous than she is. Tallulah's super popular with the kids, uh, has a gift for mimicry. So after the Wright brothers' famous flight, the Wright brothers come to Montgomery and they're being entertained by Tallulah's Aunt Marie and they judge a talent contest, Tallulah's five. Tallulah gets up and imitates her kindergarten teacher and wins the contest. That's how good she is already performing. I mean, she was probably charming and it's well, Montgomery and five Aunt year, Five-year-old kids are cute. So Imitating adults? Kind of funny. Okay. Tallulah, born exhibitionist, born performer. When she's young, her dad comes home after drinking too much and he lifts her onto the table so she can entertain his friends with some risque songs and dances. Yeah. Eventually, <laughs> grandma finds it hard to handle the girls, even the aunts. Like, we can't. So both Jean and Tallulah are going to get sent to the convent of the Sacred Heart School in Manhattanville, New York in 1912. This is not the only convent boarding school that Tallulah will attend. She's expelled twice <gasps> from convent schools. <laughs> The first time for throwing ink at the mother superior. Wow. The second time, a little bit more risque, she's thrown out for making romantic advances towards a nun. Yeah, that that would be quite scandalous. All right. So, Sister Eugenia, mm -hmm. Jean, at the age of 16, will elope with a boy that she meets that same day. Wow. Yeah, Jean. Jean is going to end up marrying seven times to six different men in her life. A little impulsive, sounds like. Not Tallulah. <laughs> Tallulah knows that marrying young is not the life for her, and she is going to pursue a career in the dramatic arts, in performance. I think there's probably a follow-up episode on Patreon with Zelda and Tallulah kind of compared together. Because when Scott Fitzgerald first comes to town, it's not Zelda that captures his eye. It's Tallulah Bankhead's sister, Jean. Hmm. That's the one he's like, ooh la la. Like you have this whole like Tallulah and Zelda friends. Years and years and years. Like the Fitzgeralds are going to come back into the story in no time at all. Anyway, when Tallulah's 15, she sends her picture into this contest, hoping that she wins a role in a movie. There's a magazine. Submit your picture and get a contract. And she doesn't put her name and contact information with the photo because she's a dumb kid from Alabama. So every 
month she goes to get the magazine. Like, do I see my picture? Do I see my picture? And she finally goes and they have her picture. They see the picture she's taken and they're like, who is this girl? She's won the contract, but she doesn't know it because she was too daft to put down her name and address. It was probably just implied that some... (laughs) I'm Tulula Bankhead. Everybody knows me. Return address might be helpful. So she finds out she wins and she's happy, but then she's a little mad because the role is a minor one. But she goes to New York with her aunt, who is a terrible chaperone. And they are staying at the Algonquin Hotel. 15-year-old Tulula Bankhead is hanging out at the Algonquin Hotel as the writer's circle is assembling around. So she's friends with Blythe Daly and Estelle Winwood. Uh, all of her friends are either lesbians or bisexual. This would start the beginning of a long list that Tallulah would be romantically linked with throughout her life, including Marlena Dietrich, Greta Garbo, and Billie Holiday, and Hattie McDaniel, too. Whoa. It does not take long for Tallulah to rocket to stardom. She's beautiful and talented, and she has a seductive, husky voice that becomes her signature characteristic. Also, pretty famous for her quick wit and vulgar comments. Later in life, Tallulah will write of her desperation during the early days of her career, writing, I was consumed by a fever to be famous, even infamous. I think she gets it. So Tallulah Bankhead becomes a legend much more through her lifestyle and personality as opposed to the part she's playing in at this time. Scandal doesn't just follow her. She welcomes it in. Welcome, Scandal. Would you like a cocktail? (laughs) Come to my party. She's getting some attention in New York. This is the early 1920s. Make it a name for herself, you know, in the greatest city in the world, But her career is not progressing quite as quickly as she wants it to. She's frustrated by parts she's being offered. She goes to an astrologer who tells her that her future lies across the Atlantic and will tell her, go, go overseas, even if you have to swim to get there. Get the hell out of the States. (gasps) Yep. So she follows her astrologer's advice And she'll move to London in 1923 to star in the play The Dancers. She is starring with Gerald D. Maurier, who has a daughter, Daphne. And when Daphne, who's 15, sees Tallulah, Daphne's like, Daddy, that's the most beautiful girl I ever saw in my life. Tallulah is a tremendous success in London's West End. Her talent, her fantastic stage presence, her outrageous personal behavior makes her irresistible to audiences. She wears flimsy lingerie on stage, whether the part calls for it or not. No, no. I will handle the costuming. (laughs) She she does, which is typically not much. That's Mm -hmm. Tallulah's uh, MO. Signature, yeah. Okay, so throughout the run of this production, The Dancers, there's a group of admiring young women that show up every night in the gallery to express their love for Tallulah. These super fans would scream, stomp, throw flowers. During her London years, Tallulah will appear in 16 plays, and she will attract the most passionate and vehement following London's West End had ever seen. Interesting. Tallulah Bankhead. Observing this phenomenon, Arnold Bennett will note, Ordinary stars get hands. If Tallulah gets a hand, it's not heard. 
What is heard is the terrific, wild, passionate, hysterical roar and shriek. Only the phrase of a psalmist can describe it. God is gone up with a shout. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So she had a really just magnetic effect on audiences. Charismatic to okay. Lula Bankhead. So she's just as famous, right, for her behavior off stage. Mm-hmm. She has an affair with tennis champion Jean Barotra, Lord Birkenhead, and her on-again, off-again lover, whose name is Napier Stewart. He is the third Baron Alington. This guy. Let me give you his description. Old Napier. Napier Stewart. He's described as well cultivated, bisexual, with sensuous, meaty lips, a distant antic charm, and a history of mysterious disappearances and a streak of cruelty. Hmm. Tallulah's moving in some pretty exciting circles. She's the toast of the town. Sleeping with some interesting people. Hanging with some pretty nifty friends. Here's something fun. When Scott and Zelda come to London in 1923, it is Tallulah Bankhead that introduces them to the Marchioness of Milford Haven. Ah, yes. Milford Haven. The Marchioness of Milford Haven is Princess Victoria Alberta Elizabeth Matilda Marie of Hesse, granddaughter of Queen Victoria. You know the Marchioness of Milford Haven because she is the grandmother of Prince Philip, consort to Queen Elizabeth II. Wow. Okay. Also the mother of Princess Alice of of Greece. Greece. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. It all comes back around. Sure. Tallulah has some tricks. She doesn't perform this at the Marchioness of Milford Havens, though. Uh, She likes to get nude. Uh, Her (laughs) biographer, Joel Lobenthal, writes, Nudity was the most effective weapon in her arsenal of shock tactics. Naked cartwheels, missing underpants, and stripping. She did them all for fun. (laughs) She informs a reporter from New York, Over here, they like me to Tallulah. You know, dance and sing and romp and fluff my hair and play reckless parts. Her name has become a verb. They just want me to Tallulah. Mm-hmm. That's what she does. One of her first affairs with a woman was a celebrated actress, Eva La Galliane. Her lovers were not exclusively women. Way strong desire for men, too. Tallulah's pretty open. She loves to openly talk about her unconventional sex life. Loves to shock people. <laughs> she introduces herself to a stranger at a party one night and says, I'm a lesbian. What do you do? (laughs) Now, Tallulah is rumored to be lovers with every other woman in Hollywood at the time that was thought to be bisexual or lesbian. None are officially confirmed. One of her most interesting rumored lovers was Hattie McDaniel. Hattie McDaniel, first black woman to win an Oscar for her role as Mammy in Gone with the Wind, McDaniel gets married four times. Her first two husbands die. She'll divorce her husband number three and husband number four. But throughout her entire marriage career, the rumors persist about Hattie McDaniel and Tallulah Bankhead. Tallulah will say, I could never become a lesbian. They have no senses of humor. But she will refer to herself as ambisextrous. (laughs) Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. A lot of these origins come from... The infamous sewing circle that happened in Hollywood started by Ala Nazimova. I have gone ahead and put that episode up on the bit.ly slash trash candy link. 
so you can hear about the Garden of Allah and the sewing circle and that whole, we did that episode ages ago, but it fits in with this if y'all want a little bit of extra trash candy. There's another lady that she's rumored to be with in Hollywood by the name of Billie Holiday. Whether they were lovers or merely friends is still a mystery. What is known is that in 1948, Bankhead will watch Billie Holiday's closing set every night that she performs with Count Basie. She's there for every single performance. Tallulah also goes on tour with Billie Holiday when her schedule will allow it. When Billie Holiday is arrested and charged with possession of opium, Tallulah Bankhead helpfully writes a letter to J. Edgar Hoover about her friend Billie Holiday. Charms J. Edgar Hoover because he's friends with her dad. Oh, sure. Okay. Right. Okay. So she's got a way in. So she's pulling strings Mm -hmm. and... Absolutely. Asking for favors from... Tallulah gets in touch with J. Edgar Hoover. One of history's great monsters. Right. Who's a close friend of her dad's. And Tallulah gets on the phone with him and begs him to exonerate Billy of the charges. Hoover's like, it's been handed over to the state authorities out of my hand. But there's some interesting correspondence that happen between them. Hoover, Tallulah Bankhead, as well as Billy Holiday. I might follow up a little bit on this. Anyway, sometime between 1949 and 1952, Tallulah will begin to distance herself from Billy Holiday. I think it's called... They broke up. <laughs> well, afraid her career would be destroyed if people knew about their relationship. Tallulah doesn't mention Billie Holiday in her 1952 autobiography that she writes. A few years later, Billie Holiday is working on her own autobiography, Lady Sings the Blues. A copy of Lady Sings the Blues is sent to Tallulah, who responds back that she will sue her if she's mentioned in the book. Mm-hmm. Billy's going to write this letter back who is, uh, Billy's mad. Billy's super mad. She does not get a letter. She does not get a reply from her letter. Just, I'll sue ya. And in the end, in Lady Sings the Blues, Tallulah's only mentioned as just a friend who sometimes came around the house to eat spaghetti. Is that code? (laughs) If so, it is a queer code I have never heard before, but I say we adopt it. So let's get Tallulah back to Hollywood. Okay. Eventually, she will come back to the United States. Her dad is sick. Tallulah's going on 30 and running out of money. And Baron Allington is marrying a member of the Bright Young Things, who is also the daughter of the Earl of Shaftesbury. Paramount Pictures makes Tallulah an offer. $5,000 a week under contract. Tallulah said, that sounds great to me. Hollywood is exploding at this time with talkies. So studios want actors and actresses who have a voice. Like it's not just you can emote great stuff with your yeah, face. It's, it's you yeah. can talk it too. You don't just have to act with your eyes anymore. Bankhead co-stars with Gary Cooper in The Devil in the Deep. She says one of her reasons for choosing that film was to fuck that divine Gary Cooper. In her first year and a half in Hollywood, she makes six films. Not many are, like, they're not great successes. American audiences don't seem to love her on the screen the way that Londoners loved her on the stage. She thrives on the stage way more than film, at least in her early years in Hollywood. Her 
personality can really shine in a live performance, where on film, it's a little different. So while her first early years in Hollywood are not a critical success, Beckett's making a ton of money. She's having a lot of fun. Joan Crawford will say about her, we all adored her. We were fascinated by her, but we were scared to death of her, too. (laughs) She had such authority as if she ruled the Earth as if she were the first woman on the moon. Hmm. From Joan Crawford, mind you. Lots of lovers. Way more open sexually than was acceptable for the time. Once in the Garden of Allah Pool, owned by Mm -hmm. Alan Asimova, there's a sexual encounter with Johnny Weissmuller the actor who played Tarzan Mm -hmm. in the 1932 movie, when asked about it, Tallulah says she was a very satisfied Jane. Oh, my God. (sighs) Again, while Tallulah never confirms any particular romantic relationship with the woman, it is certainly common knowledge in Hollywood and the theater community. She loves the innuendo, but more often commented openly about her affairs with men. I mean, that makes sense. I'm sure Paramount was not eager to have her out there talking about being bisexual. Well, comic actress Patsy Kelly is one of the few Hollywood actresses who spoke openly about her relationships with women. In the 1994 book Hollywood Lesbians by Bose Hadley, Kelly confirmed that she was a lesbian and had a long affair with Bankhead. Hadley writes, in the 1950s, Bankhead's career was on the decline and Kelly's was basically over, in part due to the mannish women she had been spending time with offset. During this time, Bankhead asked Kelly to live with her in Bedford Village, New York. Kelly moved in and became Bankhead's companion. Although Bankhead never gave up having other lovers, and Kelly essentially accepted a supporting role romantically. In the book, Patsy Kelly is quoted as saying, It was on and off, and mostly it depended on Tallulah's mood. When she'd get caught up with a man, she'd go quite hetero on us. (laughs) Her biggest scandal, like at that point, is when she tells a reporter, I haven't had an affair for six months. Six months. Too long. I want a man. All right. This is not the man she wants coming in. Former politician named Will Hayes. Will Hayes was the campaign manager of Warren Harding's successful presidential run in 1920. And then was the president of the Republican National Committee before becoming... United States Postmaster General. Hmm. After all of these jobs get done, Will Hayes becomes the first chairman of the Motion Picture Producers and Directors of America. Interesting. In 1930, Will Hayes will develop the Motion Picture Production Code, which is the handbook of expectations of the moral standards of the industry. This is the Censors Guild that ruled mass media in the U.S. This is correct. Might be a good time to remind everyone that Warren Harding called his penis Jerry, and Mm -hmm. Will Hayes probably knows about that. So, along along with this handbook of industry guidelines, there's another item known as Will Hayes' Doom Book. And the Doom Book is a bound volume for studios that will list performers, quote, unsuitable for the public. Unquote. Guess who leads that hmm, list? Top it's of the list. Hard to think. The studios and Will Hayes do not want any type of publicity surrounding Tallulah and her behavior and her comments. Like she is just so 
out of this galaxy off the charts that she is essentially banned from movies. So it is back to the stage for her. She can't get a gig because she's number one in the Doom book. Now, even though Tallulah cannot star in movies because mm-hmm. of the Doom book, yeah. that's not going to stop her from being the inspiration for a classic famous character on screen. Walt Disney buys the film rights to 101 Dalmatians. And the studio is like, how do we craft this villain? She needs to be cruel and evil and envelop just nasty. And so they're looking for inspiration. And the animator for Disney, his name is Mark Davis, tells the Los Angeles Times that he turned to real life bad women. And although he had several partial models in mind, the only one he actually named was Tallulah Bankhead. The amazing brazenness and incomparable attitude of Bankhead makes her even more of an icon for those thumbing their noses up at convention. Tallulah does not care about the (laughs) Doom book. She once calls Will Hayes a little prick. But Disney animators will use her persona, her attitude, her reputation as Hollywood's outrageous, scandalous, depraved, and haughty it girl to model Cruella DeVille. And once you see it, (laughs) you can't unsee it. Both are very thin, constantly smoking, have raspy voices, recognizable cackles, don't care what people think of them. Once you know. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, while Tallulah doesn't care about Will Hayes, whatever, he's a little prick, Tallulah does care about what her dad thinks. Her dad wants her to get married and have a family. And the closer dad is getting to his death, the more Tallulah is looking to please him. She can't have kids. She had a emergency hysterectomy in 1933. This emergency surgery was necessary because gonorrhea had spread to her uterus and fallopian tubes. Yikes. Yeah. This causes her to become infertile. Mm-hmm. She has the hysterectomy. But even during this health crisis, Tallulah does not relax or become docile in any way. Lobenthal writes in his book, Tallulah, that Bankhead spends nine weeks in the hospital and nearly dies. Her weight drops to 75 pounds. Yikes. Nine weeks in the hospital, Tallulah's finally getting out. Tallulah getting out of the hospital will yell at her doctors on the way out. Don't think this has taught me a lesson. (laughs) Wow. She's so bad and I love her. Yes. All right. In order to please daddy, she will get married in August 1937 at daddy's home in Jasper, Alabama, to an actor named John Emery that Tallulah describes as so-so. <laughs> wow. John Emery's likable. He's handsome. He looks a lot like John Barrymore. He's also really, really well endowed. So during their marriage to Lula Bankhead, when guests would come over, she'd just take him on up to the master bedroom while John's asleep and flings back the covers and like, we'll ask people, have you ever seen a prick as big as that before? <laughs> The marriage doesn't go great. Really? I'm surprised. (laughs) As the marriage is souring, she will tell people, well, darling, the weapon may be of admirable proportions, but the shot is indescribably weak. Later, Tallulah will write of her marriage. After 20 years of unbridled freedom of acting on a whim, I couldn't discipline myself to the degree necessary for a satisfactory union. Makes sense. Yeah, it does make sense. 
big surprise that that is going to end up in a trashy divorce, doomed from the very beginning. But Tallulah Bankhead will not end the marriage until after her father has passed away. Mm. Pretty much as soon as that is done, Tallulah leaves for Reno, files for divorce, which is finalized in June of 1941. She will tell a reporter, you can definitely quote me as saying there will be no plans for a remarriage. (laughs) And there were not. Just one trashy divorce. I can't induct her into the Trashy Divorces Hall of Fame. Right. But she's the trashy queen. All right. Holy cats. Now, something that Tallulah does not get credit for, or sufficient credit anyway, is her work for racial tolerance and equality long before it was popular or a safe thing to do. Well, and coming from a family of prominent Alabama politicians, I imagine this was quite a break with them. A little bit of a break. I mean, her family are Southern Democrats. Segregationists, Mm -hmm. yeah. So true to her controversial and outrageous style, Tallulah will scream insults at Nazi Max Schmeling during his boxing match with fellow Alabamian and black boxer Joe Lewis in 1938. Joe Lewis is going to knock out the Nazi and she'll leap to her feet cheering loudly. She also cheered on other Alabamians and black baseball players, Willie Mays and Willie McCovey in the 1940s and 1950s. She becomes a friend and supporter of a number of musicians, W.C. Handy, Louis Armstrong, Billie Holiday. In the early 1950s, she'll support Handy in his attempt to organize a fund supporting young black musicians. Louis Armstrong will join her as a guest on the big show in its second week and was among several African Americans to appear on the show. Uh, Other performers that appeared on the big show, Ella Fitzgerald, Ethel Waters, Josephine Baker, the Ink Spots, and political scientist and diplomat Ralph Bunch. In 1948, she will campaign for Truman. After Truman wins the election, Tallulah was invited to sit with the president's family during his inauguration. Never one to shrink from controversy. (laughs) Tallulah Bankhead will loudly boo segregationist and then governor of South Carolina, Strom Thurmond, from her seat, sitting by the new president when his float goes by. Wow. Although good. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? Yes. Boo! All right. In December 1952, Tallulah Bankhead will write an article for Ebony Magazine called The World's Greatest Musician, in which she honors her friend Louis Armstrong. In 1960, she will contribute another article to Ebony called A Southerner Looks at Prejudice. This piece will remind readers that racial equality is long overdue, that talent has no color line, and that racial discrimination was not just the South's problem, but America's problem. It is unfortunate, I think, and a disservice to her legacy that you don't hear about that more. Yeah, Some people well, know about Tallulah, but she's remembered more for being scandalous. Outrageous, than, yeah. yeah. No, that's very cool. It's good that there was uh, some substance along with the sizzle. (laughs) Well, poor Tallulah. Thanks to the Doom book, Tallulah is banned mostly from movies, but she's going to go back on stage. She will star in Broadway's The Little Foxes, The Skin of Our Teeth, Noel Coward's Private Lives. (laughs) She will get a role in Alfred Hitchcock's 1944 film called Lifeboat that 
she will find critical and commercial success. But there is a funny story from this. Apparently, Tallulah going commando all the time. The cast and crew is kind of complaining. And they go to Alfred Hitchcock like, dude, can you like make her put on underwear? Like, this is a problem. And Alfred Hitchcock's like, do I send her to hair or to wardrobe? I know. So good. 1940s, Tallulah's getting politically active. So at the time of Dunkirk, she swore not to have another drink until the Allies were back in Paris. She'll campaign for Democratic politicians. She's a passionate anti-communist. She will be an outspoken critic of Joseph McCarthy in the early 1950s, saying publicly, I think Senator McCarthy is a disgrace to the nation. This is very cool. She's a fascinating character. Like... I've been waiting to tell the story for so long. Yeah. It seemed like the time to do it. Like operating way outside the norms, but still able to like. What are norms? Call it Mm -hmm. correctly. (laughs) Well, as the 1950s approach, Tallulah's health is beginning to deteriorate. And her doctors are like, your lifestyle is going to catch up with you unless you make some changes, maybe drink less, drug less, smoke less. She's drinking up to two bottles of bourbon a day. And smoking like a hundred cigarettes a day. Oh my God. How does she have time to do other things? It's a good question. This shouldn't have been any surprise for those who knew her. Tallulah herself will write, I love this line, I'm the foe of moderation, the champion of excess. So her compromise, thank you doctors for your advice. I'll add ginger ale to the bourbon. I mean, and thus she invented the cocktail. (laughs) Cocaine is still her drug of choice, but she will use opiates and barbiturates sometimes when she has them. a healthy mix. (sighs) Well, her health is deteriorating, and so it will cause her to lose out on a number of iconic roles. Whoa. The first, Blanche Dubois in A Streetcar Named Desire. The second, Margot Channing in All About Eve, which she plays on stage to great success. Sure. Every role she plays on stage, God bless it, Betty Davis gets in the movie. Okay? Like, Betty Davis is cast as the actress on film for the role that Tallulah brings to the stage. This happens all about Eve, Little Foxes, everything. Tallulah's mad. Betty Davis will say, when I first met Tallulah Bankhead, this was like 2 a.m. It's a party. Tallulah is bourboned and ginger ale up, I suppose. And uh, Betty Davis will say, when I first met Tallulah Bankhead, she said, so you're the woman who does all my parts on the screen, and I do them so much better. (gasps) Oh, God. Betty Davis replies, I agree with you, Miss Bankhead. (laughs) Betty Davis wants, like, can somebody just give her a movie role and quit giving them to me? Because she's probably going to kill me. Like, this is like the ninth role I've had that she's made famous on stage. Anyway, I agree with you, Miss Bankhead. Like, you hear Betty Davis being snarky, but not with Tallulah Yeah, Bankhead. yeah. So, with the lack of roles that are available to her, Tallulah reinvents herself as a radio personality and TV show host. She's the MC of this popular TV program called The Big Show. It's a variety show with comedy and performances by guest stars. And her quick wit and her enthusiasm and live performance is great for the situation. She also has a lot of notable friends that come and perform. Fred Allen, Fanny Bryce, Groucho Marx, Ethel Merman, Jimmy Durante, Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis when they were still Mm -hmm. a comedy duo. Mm -hmm. Judy Garland, Ethel Barrymore, Margaret Truman, Louis Armstrong. 
When the big show ends, Tallulah is one of the stars who becomes a frequent guest on the variety shows that replace that show. It is in her later life that Tallulah Bankhead's demons begin to catch up with her once she hits her 50s. Not only is she abusing drugs and alcohol, she's unable to sleep. She's afraid to be alone. Again, her biographer, Lobenthal, will write that her maid would have to tape her wrists together at night to stop her from taking pills during her bouts of insomnia. Yikes. Orson Welles, who we talked about just this week on the Trashy Divorces of Rita Hayworth on Patreon, Orson Welles will call her the most sensational case of the aging process being unkind. I'll never forget how awful she looked at the end and how beautiful she looked at the beginning. Wow. Mm -hmm. She never loses her quick wit, though. People on the street would ask her, aren't you Tallulah Bankhead? And she'd answer, I'm what's left of her, darling. (laughs) She will continue to appear as herself on variety and talk shows, What's My Line, The Lucy Desi Comedy Hour, The Merv Griffin Show, Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour 2. But she rarely performs as an actress. She will make her final stage appearance in Tennessee Williams' play, The Milk Train Doesn't Stop Here Anymore, in 1963. Tallulah's last film was Die, Die, My Darling, with Stephanie Powers in 1965. Her final television appearance would be in the cult television classic Batman, where she played the Black Widow in 1967. Wow. She becomes a successful author in her later years. She publishes her autobiography, which sells 10 million copies. It is a New York Times bestseller for 26 weeks. Wow. The best part of the book's success for Tallulah was publicizing it. She goes on national tours. She makes nightclub appearances. She's back in her element. She's able to shine and interact with audiences and do her quippy, witty banter and one-liners. Tallulah Bankhead, that great lady from Alabama, will pass away December 12th, 1968, of double pneumonia complicated by emphysema. Her last words were, codeine bourbon. (laughs) Wow. Dying the way she lived. (laughs) She is buried in St. Paul's Churchyard in Chestertown, Maryland, in her sister Eugenia's family plot. And her burial site is a popular destination Many come to leave gifts on her grave. The rector of St. Paul's Episcopal Church, where Tallulah is buried, his name is Reverend Roger Butts, will tell an interview about fans coming to pay their respects to Tallulah. And he'll say the doorbell will ring and it's not someone to see the church. It's someone to see Tallulah. Bankhead is often heard saying, I don't care what they say about me after I'm dead. So long as they say something. She got her wish. Yep. The legacy of Tallulah Bankhead. <laughs> Holy cats. She's been widely studied and celebrated, especially in recent years. There have been a, n- a number of books and several plays and movies written about her. Notably, Kathleen Turner toured in a one-woman show called Tallulah in the year 2000. That same year, an off-Broadway show ran about her called Darling, The Life and Times of Tallulah Bankhead. Prior to that, There was another off-Broadway play called Tallulah Hallelujah, in which actress Tova Feldsha starred as Tallulah. In 2010, Valerie Harper will star on Broadway as Tallulah Bankhead in the play called Looped. Of the legend, Valerie Harper says, I think she had such a sense of humor about it all. 
She was her own sort of reality TV show. She was always off script. She was painfully honest, often to her own detriment. I think people looked at her and saw freedom. She was outspoken and funny. I remember my mom listening to Tallulah on the radio in the 1950s and saying, you never know what she's going to say next. In her best-selling memoir, Tallulah Bankhead will write, All our follies, our brutalities, the outrage perpetuated on humanity have a common root, ignorance. As we denounce the rebellious, the nonconformist, so we reward mediocrity so long as it mirrors herd standards. I don't know. I love her. Yeah. And this thought, and in so many other ways, Tallulah Bankhead, a woman decades, decades ahead of her time. Trashy hero. Trashy Alabama girl. My hero, Tallulah. <laughs> I named my dog after Tallulah Bankhead. You did, yes. I, I, I love her. She's one of my favorites. As trash cans go. Oh, God. Good Lord. A London West End stage full of trash cans filled with cocaine and bourbon and men and women and whatever Tallulah wants. (laughs) Because you couldn't tell her no anyway. (laughs) Well told. Pride of Huntsville, Alabama. Actually, I I don't know. Pride of Montgomery. Like, Mm -hmm. she moved around. Sure. She moved around a little bit. Montgomery claims her. Old Dutch. Anyway, that's the story of Tallulah Bankhead, or what I can at least fit into an episode of Trashy Divorces. Yeah. Queen of Trashy, Tallulah Bankhead. Yep. I love her. Don't forget, we'll be back with you on Wednesday for Trashy Breakups. Patreon listeners, y'all are going to have free gifts all week long for my birthday. Mm-hmm. So excited about that. Stay tuned on Monday for that special announcement. Everyone else can check out some free stuff at bit.ly slash trash candy. Yeah, just updated the Garden of Allah story. There's also a story on there about Ernest Hemingway, Zelda Fitzgerald, and F. Scott Fitzgerald and their romantic triangle. A bunch of good stuff on there. We just are into the trash candy here. We cannot get enough trash candy for my birthday. Thanks, everybody, for spending your time with us today. And these tales of women gone wrong (laughs) bad girls i love them but right in so many ways always a fan Mm -hmm. oh i wish i could be as bad as tallulah (laughs) until we meet again friends keep your hands clean keep your hearts trashy Mm -hmm. thanks so much yep everybody have a great week darlings (laughs) bye bye and thanks to you for listening trashy divorces is a hemlock creatives production created and produced right here in atlanta georgia by us Stacy and Alicia, with a little research and writing help from the brilliant Melissa O. Our art is by Sydney V. Smith. That's Sydney V. Smith at carbonmade.com. And our music is used with permission of Ratsy. Check her out at Ratsy's store on Instagram and definitely drop into Ratsy's store anytime you're in Oberlin, Ohio. You can contact us at trashydivorces at gmail.com or find us on the World Wide Web at trashydivorces.com. If you need more trash candy in your life, our Patreon community includes some of the very best humans around and thousands of hours of bonus content at every level of support. Join the fun at patreon.com slash trashydivorces. Interested in some Trashy Divorces swag? Check out our merch shop and Trash Panda Enthusiasm Society at bit.ly slash trashy gear. Want to advertise with us? Reach out to sales at advertisecast.com for more information. And last but not least, come play with us on social media. 
I keep most of our Trashy Divorces Instagram hopping. Stacy and I share it up over on Facebook, including our Trashy Divorces podcast discussion group. Come join us over there, and thanks again, everybody, for listening. Keep it trashy, y'all.